Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Uh, so today we are starting a brand new series that I've had just in my mind and heart for some time now. And what I've asked each person to do, I'll be doing some of the messages and having other leaders share as well throughout the summer. And, uh, you know, we, we used to do like video series in summer, and this summer that just felt lazy because of 2020. And so we didn't meet for so long. And so we just thought we need to really make sure we're, we're keeping these live messages in front of you. And um, so what we're, the series is going to be called, it's going to be called From the Heart. And I'm asking each person who's sharing to speak on something that they wish they had heard when they were in high school. And so there's not going to be like this book we're going through or anything like that, but you're going to hear a message from us to you that is uh, really, really, really passionate about. And so today, um, I'm going to kick off today's message by talking about something that I don't really like to talk about, and it's Star Wars, all right? Any Star Wars, any Star Wars fans in the room? Just be proud about it if you are, because it takes a lot of pride to be a Star Wars fan. Um, I'm actually not a huge Star Wars fan. I watch those because I have to, and, uh, or people will make fun of me if I don't, so I need to like, understand what's going on, right? So I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but in the Star Wars, I didn't see the prequel trilogy, which is like actually really old now. I didn't see that until fairly recently. And uh, my kids want to watch, so I'll watch it with them. Um, but there's, of course, there's Senator Palpatine. You know who that is, right? I think I have a picture on the screen. And what he does is he rises up through the ranks of the Republic and becomes the Chancellor of the Senate. And then, but eventually, he reveals who he really is, which is who? Who's he really? Who is he really? So he's really Darth Sidious. And, uh, and all along, he's been kind of pulling the strings, right, of, of conflicts in the Republic, and uh, so there's this person who's actually against the Republic, like hiding in plain sight, um, and all along he's been at the source of so much conflict, and, uh, and he seems like he's a champion for the Republic, but he was really its greatest enemy all along. And uh, it's very often that the person on the inside is the person that can cause the greatest damage. And I think the same thing is true in the church. Because there are people on the inside of the church, I think, that can cause the greatest damage in the church. Our biggest danger isn't the culture out there. It is what can happen inside the church and the division that can happen inside the church. Um, I want to tell you a story about my, I've shared this numerous times with my, uh, my students, but the new freshmen don't really know kind of the background here. So here's a picture of the inside of my church I grew up in. It's the clearest picture I could find online. But this is the inside of the church I grew up in, in Virginia. And, uh, and that baptismal place up in the top, above the choir loft, yes, we had a choir at my church growing up, that's where I was baptized, right up there as a seven-year-old kid. And my church, I grew up in this church, and when I got to be ni a ninth grader, uh, we finally hired a full-time youth pastor who all of us really loved and, and really connected with. And he was there for just four years, from my freshman to my senior year. So for me, it was perfect. Everyone else, not so much, but it, for me, it was great because he was there for my entire high school time. And, uh, and really, um, during his time there, we all began to see just a lot of, like, disunity and, and infighting in our church. Um, it all bubbled up to a point where the senior pastor asked the youth pastor and the worship pastor to resign because they didn't really get along, and then they both said, no, we're not going to resign, and so the whole thing goes to this big, they bring in like a consultant to talk to people and figure out what's going on, and, and then that consultant, his recommendation to the church was to fire all of the pastors 
or keep them all. It was like a package deal. And, uh, and the church got to vote yes or no on this proposition. And so the church calls a business meeting. That's how we govern ourselves. We did business meeting where people got to vote on stuff like that. And the church had two options. You could either vote yes, they all have to be fired, or no, they don't. They all stay. Well, at this point, the congregation was so angry at the senior pastor, and they so wanted to get rid of him, that they, that they voted yes and fired all of them, all in one. So imagine that happening at our church, where literally all the pastors just go, like, in, we're gone in, like, one weekend. Some of you are like, that's not a bad idea, you know? Um, but, you know, just imagine, like, if that took place, and what damage that would do to you as a kid, you're like, what is wrong with us? This is so dysfunctional. And it created all this baggage for me um, for a few years after, for, for many years afterwards. I became jaded and cynical, began to have zero hope for the church. But then I came to this realization that we're not supposed to put our hope in the church. Our hope should be in Jesus. I read this quote recently by this guy named Peter uh, uh, Wainer. He says, the church is not the hope of the world. Its purpose is to be a witness to the hope of the world, even if that witness is often imperfect. But those of us of the Christian faith do seem to be overdoing the imperfect part. And he's referring, when he says that, he's referring to what you're seeing in our culture right now and how the church is operating, how dysfunctional the church can look to the Christian and to the non-Christian. And so when you realize that Jesus is your hope, it's kind of easier to stay committed to the church despite the church's imperfections. So I think this thing, uh, I came to this realization that I think we're kind of supposed to be discontent with the church. But the question is what kind? What kind of discontentment should we have with the church? There's three types I want to talk about. The first is called cynical discontentment. And this may lead to someone becoming so hardened towards the church, they end up bailing on the church because they're so jaded and cynical over the dysfunction they can see in the church. So there's cynical discontent. There's apathetic discontentment. And this is maybe someone who they stay, with it. They stay in the church. They stay a part of it, but they just stop caring. And they're just a part of it, but they don't really care that much. They're kind of on the fringe and they're apathetic. And then there's a third one I want to talk to you about today, which is called sacred discontent. And this is staying committed to the church, wanting to make it better. Yeah, there's still the discontentment, but it's rooted in the right things, in, in good, holy, righteous things. But it maintains um, its place of being sacred in your life and doesn't become cynical or apathetic. So here's how we can define sacred discontent. It is a godly, productive disillusionment that accepts both the reality of sin and the future hope of God. You know, there are many people that become so disillusioned, they become, it, it turns ungodly or unproductive. That's not what this is talking about. This is a sacred discontent, which is a discontent and it's some disillusionment but it remains godly and productive in spite of that discontent. So cynical discontent is accepting the reality of sin, but that's it. Like you just acknowledge the reality of sin, but that's, that's it. And it doesn't have this sacred quality to it. We really believe that discontentment should not lead to a disconnection from the church. 
And so we're going to talk about this today. Turn your Bibles to uh, 3rd John. It is a hard book to find, but it is after 1st and 2nd John. And it's toward the end of your Bible. It is the shortest book in the Bible. And the Apostle John wrote this. And he is writing this to a friend of his named Gaius. And so turn to 3rd John. We're going to go through the entire little short book today. In verses 1 to 4, it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So why are we using this letter to talk about church discontentment? Well, we're going to see two men talked about in this letter, uh, Gaius and Diotrephes, and they're representing two different kinds of people. One is building up the church, and the other is tearing down the church. And so first we're going to hear about Gaius. And so in first, verse 1, John says of this person, he says, Gaius, whom I love in truth. And so what ties these two men together is really important. It's the truth about Jesus. The gospel is what's tying these two men together. And I always love seeing how the gospel brings people together who wouldn't normally be together. I think of all the years I've been involved in a small group at, here at TBC. Um, it used to be on Fridays, now it's on Sunday evenings. And the different personalities and people, backgrounds, professions that are in that group is always just so different. And we encourage each other, study the word together, pray for each other. We live our lives connected to each other. And what ties us together is the truth of, about Jesus. And I also love seeing it whenever we put you guys in random, they're not random, we actually plan it this way, um, impact teams. And different personalities, different gift sets, totally different backgrounds. And seeing how you guys rally around the gospel in your teams is a profound thing for us to watch year in and year out. And so I love seeing how the gospel brings people together who wouldn't normally be together. And then in verses 3 to 4, he says this statement. He says, you are walking in the truth. And for you and I, we, we see belief as just believing a set of facts. Yeah, I believe these things about Jesus. Check, check, check. I believe those facts about Jesus. But belief is more than believing a set of facts. He refers here to um, walking in truth. So belief should, true belief should lead to walking. And this is what it means to truly believe. So that means if you truly believe the gospel, then it's going to be evident to those people that are around you. So when John is hearing reports about this guy named Gaius and his faith and how it's affecting the people there in that congregation, John is saying, I am hearing reports about you and how the gospel has impacted your life and it's affecting how you're living your life. And other people are noticing that and taking notice of that. And I want to encourage you in that. He also says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking. In. This is one of my favorite verses. If, if someone said to me, why are you a youth pastor? I would point to this verse. Because there's no greater joy that I have than to see young people walking in the truth. Understanding truth. And, and taking it in in a real way and, and walking in it. There's no greater joy than that for me. And I love seeing this now 
But I love it even more when I see many of you return back and come back around and be a part of things here, whether it's serving or whether it is um, you just come to visit. Like one of our greatest joys is I know you all love seeing some of the, uh, it's funny, every year we have those, um, those college students and, and young adults that have been a part of Impact, and they just want to come and see Impact Camp. And they can't stay away. They want to come and see. I talked to a girl this week. She said, I was having serious FOMO, seeing all the pictures, and I had to get to the last night of Impact Camp. And so she came. She came the last night to be with you guys. And doesn't know many of you, but she wanted to be a part of that. And it's so encouraging to hear these students and how they're living out their faith even four or five years after high school. And it's encouraging to hear those that are 10, 12 years removed that are living out their faith in these ways. And that is so encouraging to us as, as leaders and as pastors. So a pastor's greatest joy is to see people walking in truth. And if you're walking in this kind of truth, you're going to want to share this truth. You know, um, it's interesting when I hear conversations. I'm humbled to hear. Um, I was especially, I, I think I said this the first night of Impact Camp. But it was really eerie, like going and visiting the location of Impact Camp last year without you guys. Did like a little just get away with the family to stay there just for three or four nights. And, uh, and we, did, we had, of course, canceled Impact Camp last year. And it was really eerie, like being there without you guys and just being there kind of alone and thinking, like, we just canceled this huge, really important thing that we always do. And it was encouraging to me. I had no idea what to expect. This, I was like, we have 20 kids doing it. I have no idea what we're going to have for impact this year. And it was so encouraging to see that you guys want to share this truth and that you returned back and, and that you desire to walk in truth in this way so that you want to share this truth. And that's such an encouraging thing for us. Look with me now at verse 5. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So he's still talking about Gaius and saying how encouraging it is to see Gaius walking in his faith and and living out his, this truth of the gospel. And then he starts talking about how Gaius is being hospitable to people who are missionaries, traveling missionaries. So one way that Gaius walks in the truth is by showing hospitality to missionaries that are being sent out in the early church. So walking in truth will lead to sacrificing time and money and talent so that truth can spread. And this man, Gaius, he got this vision, understood it, and was living it out. These people, they're, they're taking people into their, into their homes. They are feeding them. They're supporting them. Listen, this is not like um, we think of hospitality. Most of us think of hospitality like, well, I, I, I had some friends over for dinner. Or they came over and we hung out. That's hospi hospitality. This guy is receiving strangers into his home, feeding people, supporting people, giving financially to the cause. And he's doing this for people he didn't even know. These are strangers to him. So imagine if we had that kind of hospitality for the stranger here at Overflow. 
Imagine if, what would happen if we had that kind of hospitality for the stranger right here in this ministry. There are lots that may visit, but what makes someone stay? Well, when they feel like there's this connection, this, this hospitality element, when the stranger is welcomed in, that's when someone wants to return and be a part of things. I've always said that what is, what is said on this stage is important. We value that. But what makes somebody want to stay here is how you treat them. How I treat them is important as well. But what really matters to them is how you treat them. And my leaders could be the friendliest people in the world, but if the students aren't doing the same thing, they're gone. They're out the door. Like, it is so important that you understand this hospitality element that Gaius has adopted. He's doing this for strangers, for people he doesn't even know. You know, I hear the statement over and over again, um, from, from new people sometimes, well, I don't know anybody, so I'm not, really, not going to go down there. And I would say, well, listen, that's on us to get to know people that are coming in this place and to be hospitable to them. And so what would it look like if we made this the most hospitable place in someone's week? And that takes all of us working towards that goal. So this man named Gaius, he walks in truth, which leads to showing hospitality to the stranger. And then in verse 9, things take a turn. And this is the other person that John wants to talk about. He says in verse 9, he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. On the one hand, this man, Gaius, is building up the church, and this brings great joy to John, but the other guy, Diotrephes, is tearing down the church, brings conflict and only heartache. He puts himself first, doesn't submit to authority. He talks trash against Paul and the other people, doesn't show hospitality, and tries to expel people out of the church who do show hospitality. He's doing everything the opposite of what Gaius is doing. So Gaius walks in truth, builds up the church, serves the church, but Diotrephes walks in lies, tears down the church, and wants to punish those who serve. Listen, you and I will experience these two dynamics in the church, and they're usually connected to people. You're going to experience joy and heartache in the people of God, in the church, and it's going to lead to this discontent, but the question is, what kind of discontent will it be for you? Will it be cynical apathetic or will it be sacred I'm going to get really honest with you over the last 14 months I would say the hardest thing about the church has not been COVID but it's been how the church has reacted to COVID and I will tell you that one of the hardest things as a pastor to watch And I will admit, it's made me grow more cynical again, or be tempted towards that again, towards our own church even. You know, people in the last 14 months, they have divided over politics. They have divided over race relations and COVID guidelines. And the list goes on and on and on. People have left churches over something as small as a face mask. And I just can't help but think 
You know, you know, Paul wrote some pretty harsh letters to some churches in the Bible. We see those, his words in the New Testament. And he had some hard things to say to some churches. And I have to ask myself, what would Paul, what letter would he write to the church in America today? What would he say to us as a church dividing over trivial things? Like leaving a church at the drop of a hat? Because this one person says something that you didn't like? And so it, it's disheartening, and it can lead us towards uh, cynicism. And I will say that over many months when we really couldn't see the people of our church and you couldn't see, like, why it was that you like them, and all you see is just online garbage and people just mudslinging at each other all the time over these trivial, trivial issues, when you see those kind of things, it just you start to grow cynical and jaded all over again. And it, it has happened to me. It's happened to me numerous times throughout the last 14 months. So here's the reality. We have to, it's not wrong to look at these things and to be discontent with them. We've got to fight to keep it sacred and not let it get into cynicism and apathy in the church. Listen, you're going to encounter people like Gaius who make you want to stay but also people like Diotrephes who make you want to go. And it's really important that you navigate this with wisdom and discernment. And so if you're around the church long enough, you're going to see that it's both glorious, but also can be grotesque. It's both, it's both a masterpiece, but it also can be a mess. And you'll see those two dynamics in the church. I like how this one writer says, he says, Many of those who criticize the church do so on the basis of an ideal. They set up an abstract picture of the church and then criticize the real church when it fails to resemble the fantasy. We are humans, and our communities reflect our humanity at its best and its worst. So you and I, we are idealistic people. We like to think of what's the ideal. And when reality doesn't match up to the ideal, we want to we bolt, we want to bail. And so we talk a lot about community here at TBC, and we're always trying to paint a picture of what it should look like. We in, invite you into community, and then when you come in, it rarely matches up to how you might have imagined it, and even the image that we put before you sometimes. I like what uh, Bonhoeffer says. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. He's saying we've got to be careful. We don't love our ideal more than the people. Our dreams and visions include real people who struggle with sin. And so this is not just helpful to think about for navigating the church, but also all relationships. I like what Tom Varney says. He says, people who do not understand the dual nature of relationships will never succeed at them. If you don't understand that these relationships have some mess involved and that that just comes with relationship wherever we find relationship if you don't understand the dual nature of relationship you will never succeed at relationships that's part of the package so friendship is both messy and glorious marriage is messy and glorious if we approach any relationship expecting all glory and no mess we're going to be the first ones to bail 
at the same time that we don't ignore the mess. We deal with it. John says here that he's going to deal with diatrophies. He's not ignoring it. He's going to deal with this guy. And then look at verse 11 where it says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. And so as this man, Gaius, walks his tension, John encourages him to stay committed to the church. It'd be really easy to come against diatrophies using his own methods, matching evil for evil. It'd be easy to bail, but whenever we do that, evil wins. So John encourages Gaius to stay and fight for good. And, of course, we see John. John stays committed to the church. Imagine if John had not stayed committed to the church. We wouldn't have John's gospel. We wouldn't have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We wouldn't have the letter of Revelation. So what if Gaius had bailed because of diatrophies? What if he just said, you know, I'm done. Forget this church thing. I'm out of here. Imagine the downstream effect of that. I think about my own youth pastor. What if my own youth pastor had just bailed on the whole church altogether because of what happened to him? Like, would I be in this job right now? I don't think that I would be. So whenever we think about we're going to bail on the church, imagine the downstream effect that that might have. You know, God has a way of taking broken and messy things and using them for his glory And that sounds a lot like the cross, I think. You know, look at how God used the evil that was done to him to turn it on its head and use it for his glory. And the question is, can he not do the same thing with those things in our own lives? Can he not do the same thing whenever evil is done to us? He can turn it on his head and use it for his glory. I like what Romans 5.8 says. It says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So whenever, um, whenever John writes to Gaius, he says, it, he might as well have just said, don't imitate diatrophies, but imitate Jesus on the cross, who despite the evil being done to him, bled and died for his church. So whenever you and I are at our worst, that's when Jesus shows his greatest act of love. And in our sin, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't bail But that's when he dies. And so while we were his enemy, he performs his greatest sacrifice. And if we can be reconciled to God, how much more can we be reconciled to each other because of the gospel? And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're you're not yet a believer, you're a skeptic, you're questioning this whole thing, maybe you've said things like, the church is full of hypocrites, and I would say to you that you're absolutely right. It is. But remember, the church isn't supposed to be the hope of the world. Jesus is. And it's our job to point to that hope. We don't do that well sometimes at that. But the church is not to be the hope of the world. And so I would encourage you, if you're just checking things out, maybe you call yourself a skeptic, don't reject Jesus based on our shortcomings. You evaluate Jesus based on Jesus, not based on just us. And then for, if there's believers here that have just been sinned against, um, I want to pray for you, against, uh, pray against apathy and cynicism. Pray for healing and for the strength to live with this thing called the sacred discontent. I like what uh, Karl Barth says. He says, the kingdom of God is coming, so you must not begin flight prematurely. Take your place and be in your place a true minister. Be at once quite restless and at the same time quite at rest. 
And so right now I'm going to have you guys go 